When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking good reads with Glenn Blackwood of the Rough Grouse Society. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 183. All right, welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode, as always. Thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Got a whole bunch of gift packages going out this week to new patrons, can coolers, Birdshot Podcast stickers. Thanks to all the new signups. And of course, thank you to all existing Patreon patrons. Each of you are eligible for the Patreon Patreon discounts, like the one we have for Gumleaf Boots, Gumleaf USA, eligible for monthly giveaways, like the big hunt giveaway we have going on right now. Our July winner will be chosen in just a couple of days, and they'll have a choice of a vest from Final Rise, a new pair of brush pants from First Light, or a Dogtrip Pathfinder 2 GPS collar. And if you miss out on July's giveaway, don't worry, we're going to keep right on going into August and into hunting season. You also get access to any bonus content I release via Patreon, like the little preview episode we did last week. You can listen to that complete interview with Nick Adair and myself via patreon.com forward slash birdshot. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month, and I thank you for considering that. All right, I'm going to try to be quick about this intro. I'm a little behind schedule. This episode was supposed to launch this morning, but things got a little hectic this week. But nonetheless, I'm trying to finish this up, get it published, and get into weekend mode, right? Just like hopefully all of you are, depending on when, of course, you're listening to this. But I do want to mention, you may have seen this going around, and we talked about it on a recent episode, but the North American Grasslands Conservation Act has been presented, proposed, and 
I know I saw something from Pheasants Forever earlier this week, and I got an email this morning from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and given that timing, I figured I would mention it on the podcast intro today. I am going to put a link to the backcountryhunters.org website in the show notes to this episode. They do a great job of making it very easy to contact your representatives via their website, basically plug in a little bit of information. They have a letter draft it up for you. It's always best to personalize that a little bit or tailor it so they don't get a bunch of the exact same ones. But as we have heard many, many times before, you can make a difference and each and every inquiry and contact that they do get adds up. And I'll be honest, I'm not always up to speed or completely in tune on the political landscape. And I oftentimes defer to the conservation groups I support. But in this case, with the North American Grasslands Conservation Act, it has been well covered by various Upland Game Bird Conservation Organizations, and I believe it's worthy of a mention here on the Birdshot Podcast without a doubt. So if you haven't seen that yet, if you haven't taken action on it, it's made very easy to do via Peasants Forever or Backcountry Hunters, or I'm sure a handful of others. I'll throw a link in the show notes, and if you got a minute, go do that today. And one other thing that came across my radar, the Minnesota ruffed grouse drumming counts are circulating around this morning, and they are up. And I believe, as the report put it, unexpectedly up because we technically should be on the downward trend of the cycle. However, I feel like that unexpected rise kind of aligns with my anecdotal observations in that we had a good fall last year. There seemed to be a good number of birds in the woods last year. And the winter seemed to be very favorable for grouse. Despite it being very cold, there were great snow roosting conditions for the bulk of the winter. And in theory, that should help more birds survive the winter. It was kind of a late spring, but once we flipped into summer mode, it warmed up pretty fast. And I don't feel like we had a lot of cold, wet weather while ruffed grouse chicks would have been on the ground in June. But again, that's just very, very anecdotal. It's just me talking here. The report explains it a little bit more and kind of cautions about some heavy rainfall amounts. I don't know. I think it's been favorable, but the key thing to remember here is that The drumming survey is not a population census. It is an index. It's okay at showing trends, but it is not a hunting success predictor. And ultimately, it is surveying male grouse that survive the winter. It's a springtime index capturing data on male grouse that survive the winter. has nothing to do with the hatch, which, in my opinion, ultimately has a lot more to do with what hunters see in the woods in the fall. And that is something that is much harder to monitor and predict in the thick summer woods. So it's one of those things where you never know until you get out there in the fall, a lot can happen between the springtime drumming survey and the fall hunting season. But nonetheless, it is another piece of information that comes out every year. And it's something that us grouse hunters look at with intrigue and curiosity. At least I do every year. So thought I would mention that, check it out. And now that we're talking conservation groups and ruffed grouse, Let's transition into our episode today. Today we are joined by a staff member of the Ruffed Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society, Glenn Blackwood. He is a well-known purveyor of sporting literature. He's a wealth of knowledge in the sporting literature world. I bought a number of books from Glenn over the years, including one recently that I could not find anywhere else. So I went to Glenn Blackwood, and that would be 55 Years a Grouse Hunter by Frank Gisoro. I just started reading that yesterday. So far, it's excellent. Can't wait to finish that one. And I've been really diving into my Upland Bird library lately, so I thought it'd be a great time to get Glenn on, talk some sporting literature, 
I wanted to go around the uplands a bit and get some of his recommendations on books for other species. Maybe drop a title or an author name for all of you out there listening. You can go grab a book. And in this last month or so before the upland season gets into full swing, perhaps go out and find your next favorite upland book. Something to page through and read as you get excited for the season. So Glenn has plenty of stories to share. We'll get into all that. We talk a little rough grouse society. We talk plenty of books. And as I mentioned in the episode, since I spoke with Glenn, I have gone out and purchased a few more books. So I hope you do the same and don't hesitate to reach out to Glenn if you're looking for something specific. So with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast of the Rough Grouse and American Woodcock Society, Glenn Blackwood. And we are joined on the Birdshot podcast by Glenn Blackwood. Thanks for joining me today, Glenn. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for uh, the invitation. Absolutely. Happy to have you here. Happy to chat about some things that kind of have me excited at this this point in the year. It's it's the end of July. I know I'm looking forward as many listeners are, and I'm sure you are too, Glenn. Uh, and I've been reading a lot of sporting literature lately. Well, I think it's that time of the year where uh, if you're a reader or a lover of books, uh, you're you're getting anxious and uh you know it's it's one of those things where we i live in just north of grand rapids michigan and rockford and and we had a cool night um and there was dew and you know i was just uh doing some retriever work and had the puppy on the training table this morning and it was you know comfortable but in the evenings uh what better to do than than sit there and read some of the old classics or modern works and and get in the mood Absolutely. You mentioned that it was it was a fairly cool evening here last night. And yeah, once those start to start piling up this time of year, that will really uh, kind of gets the spidey sense tingling a little bit at that point. Yeah, it accelerates the adrenaline, if nothing else. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And one way to jump back into the covers a little bit early is through the pages of a, of a good book, which we will talk plenty about today, but I would like to set the stage a little bit. And Glenn, this is your first time on, on the podcast. You recently were on Reed Bryant's podcast, which I listened to that. It was a great interview. And I interviewed Reed a couple weeks ago, so kind of connecting some dots here. But I've, I'll have some questions for you on, on books, and we will get into that. But why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about you beyond where you're from and kind of what keeps you busy during the day in the world of, of upland bird hunting, Glenn. Well, um, I learned to fish and got uh, my passion for the outdoors uh, from my father, who was a conservation officer in the state of Ohio, and my grandfather, uh, who grew up in central Pennsylvania, about 12 miles to the west of State College. Um, spent many years in the fly fishing industry, um, and that's kind of where we developed the book side of things. Uh, but then uh, a couple years ago, I took a leap of faith and went to work as a regional development of, or director of development for Rough Grouse American Woodcock Societies uh, under the leadership of uh, Dr. Ben Jones. And uh, for the last two years, I've, uh, I guess, going back, paying homage to uh, my upbringing, my father's, uh, my grandfather's. Uh, who were all great conservationists and uh, spending uh, the next few years of my second career uh, in the conservation <laughs> realms, uh, working uh, for RGS and AWS yeah. uh, with young growth forests, forest management, grouse and woodcock, uh, and things like that. So uh, 
that's kind of a very quick uh, synopsis, but uh, exciting things going on in Michigan uh, with RGS and you know, everybody says, I'm an, I'm an Ohio State alumni. How did you get to Michigan? I said, it's three reasons. Uh, Trout, Grouse, and Woodcock. And then I <laughs> met my lovely wife, um, and she was a, a Michigander and has been here ever since. So uh, it's a pretty nice place to be. Yeah, I spent a little bit of time over there, enough to know why why uh, there is a fair bit of Michigan pride. Yeah, there's plenty to, plenty to do there, plenty to see. Uh, great place to be. Tell me... I am curious now. You mentioned Ohio, and I, th- I think I had probably heard that before your backstory. But is that, am, am I safe in assuming that that's where you got your first exposure to the ruffed grouse? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, at that time, uh, southern part of the state, uh, Jackson County uh, being one county down in there, Scioto, Athens, um, had good populations of birds. And with mm-hmm. my father being a conservation officer um through deer season and and at that time ohio's grouse season went into january and february uh being more temperate but he was busy with you know being a rabbit cop uh small game hunters deer hunters waterfowl hunters uh during the bulk of the season but once those things stopped um every you know about christmas time every saturday we'd find ourselves uh loading up in the old family station wagon and van, if you will, and headed uh, someplace down south to chase uh, grouse and woodcock. Heading south to chase grouse and woodcock. That, yes. that almost sounds strange these days. Well, not I guess more grouse than woodcock because woodcock would have been out. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Was your dad too busy to have dogs back then? Um, we had labs, um, but okay. a lot of our friends had setters or pointers, uh, so we were fortunate to, to hunt over the as well. Yeah. What do you recall about, and I'm kind of, I'm getting at, you know, I, I don't know a whole lot about Ohio rough grouse hunting or the history there, but I just, I feel I have enough sense to know that it obviously, it's not what it once was. And I could probably come up with a, with a storyline that might tell the story of why it is not the case, why it is not so good anymore. But being that you grew up there and hunted there, I mean, in your estimation, what have you seen? What did you see change over the years? Or were you there long enough to kind of witness? That? Well, I was there through my college years. And then, yeah. you know, slightly after leaving the graduating from the university, I moved to Michigan. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's all habitat driven, like, uh, everything else, yeah. uh, that goes with that, um, in those areas. But, you know, the bird shooting at that time was, uh, you know, I don't think it would have rivaled uh, the Upper Northeast mm-hmm. or the Upper Great Lakes region, um, but certainly there were uh, opportunities to be had, and you know, some days were better than others. Uh, yeah. But uh, again, wonderful memories uh, of going down there and walking up those hills. You know, and as the old joke is you always seem to be going uphill, not down. But uh, uh, <laughs> A lot of good times. Uh, Just like there. when you're walking to school uphill both ways, right? Guys? Exactly. You know, and, <laughs> and, and along with that was, you know, we'd always leave where we lived and, and head down this little state two-lane road. And we'd always kind of pull into, like, Chillicothe and stop there at the Bob Evans and, uh, you know, get our fill of caffeine and coffee and, and biscuits yeah. and gravy to take us through the day and then, Again, my eating habits, but you know, at that time, uh, 
Kentucky Fried Chicken sold chicken livers and gizzards, and uh, no kidding. you know we'd always know stop on the way home and, and get uh, buckets of livers and gizzards uh, <laughs> uh, on, on this because it, it took us you know thir- three hours or so to get down there. So it was a always an epic adventure. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how big of a thing chicken livers are. I feel like a lot of people would probably turn up their nose at that, but they're pretty good. If you ever oh. had them ba- bacon wrapped, <laughs> um, they 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 certainly are. <laughs> maybe maybe we're the strange ones. I don't know, Glenn. But do you ever do you ever keep the livers and gizzards out of the out of grouse? Oh yes, yeah, certainly. I do. I guess I don't. I don't keep gizzards as much. I've never. I'm. I've kind of curious about it. I've never really done that. But um, I like opening them up and seeing seeing what's inside. Seeing there, what's but, in there. Yeah, yeah. But what do you do? You uh, do you have a preparation for gizzard deep fry? Um, well, not really deep fry, but more, you know, get a bunch and, you know, just roll them in Italian breadcrumbs mm-hmm. and then pan fry them in a cast iron skillet and eat them as hors d'oeuvres. Yeah. It kind of sounds like a crispy, tasty snack. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any memories of first grouse or any anything really stand out, kind of solidified, burned into your brain back from the early days in Ohio? Um. I may have, I think I've told this story, I don't know if I told it recently or not, but uh, the, the big the big story that, that always sits in my mind, and certainly there's, you know, grouse, I think the first grouse came, it was like the dog turned and it flushed, and it was like a kind of a high house eight just mm. coming straight in there, and, you know, it was probably the, one of the easier grouse shots I ever had in my entire life, but... The one that really is etched in my mind is uh, there was a large agricultural family whose uh, the mother of the family happened to be my third grade teacher. Mm. And they had this wonderful farm that had this little creek that ran down through it and had a muskrat marsh on it. And uh, ducks would get in there and pheasants and rabbits and what everything else. And, uh, you know, when your father's the game warden and you give uh, his son fishing and shooting and trapping access to your property it gets watched over pretty well um sure. <laughs> so the troxels gave me carte blanche to uh, to this deal but uh i will always remember one friday and again going back to the reading aspect of it which i do i'd been given sporting books as birthday presents and christmas presents over the years and um had read about woodcock and gene hill and steve smith and sundry others but anyway i'm going in after school to check my trap line and uh there's just woodcock everywhere i mean you know and here i am with a pack basket and chest waders and uh <laughs> there's woodcock flitting everywhere yeah and i am just excited and i go home and i call my grandfather and i call my dad and say you're not going to believe this but a flight of woodcock have landed in on the on the outside of the marsh yeah and uh let's go tomorrow morning so the next morning comes and overnight temperatures had dropped and we got uh i don't know a skiff of snow maybe an inch not much mm. more than that and the woodcock were gone they were just there and as they are and it yep. clicked to me about the migration the mystery of these great little birds and it was a bust uh you know it was like you know the world stood before us and then the world went away 
Um, but uh, that's one that etches in my mind. Uh, another one that uh, kind of etches in my mind early on. I don't know how old I was, but uh, my father had been in, in southeastern Ohio during deer season and uh, working for the state and uh, had met the person who ran the, the county orphanage. And uh, he invited myself and my father to come back down and hunt with him. And uh, so we go hunt at this thing, and we pull in this county orphanage. It's like this long serpentine driveway up on a hill, and here's this big kind of monstrous stone house that's dark and gothic, something out of a Dickens tale or something. Yeah. And I'm petrified. I'm just, I'm, I'm just petrified. But anyway, um, we go out and we hunt, and we hunted along some railroad tracks, believe it or not, on the railroad grade. And he had two setters. One was on the right, one was on the left. There's always blackberry canes and martiful rows and, and everything in there. And the dogs would go on point, and he would pick up the railroad cinders or rocks and throw them down in front of the dogs to get the birds to flush and the birds would flush up kind of like a trap shot like a 16 yard trap shot and i remember that we shot some birds that day but it wasn't it wasn't what I, I wanted it to be um it was it was harvesting uh versus you know being in the woods but too easy I, the thing that i still walk away from that aspect is is that birds like berries and you find them in those feeding zones when they're feeding, feeding patches, um, and you're going to have some opportunities. Yeah, uh, hunting along the railroad tracks that uh, and the the snowfall and the woodcock definitely uh, definitely a few nuggets there burned into the mind of Mr. Blackwood. So before we get into dive too deep into sporting literature, I do want to go there. Oh, I was going to ask you this. Your dad as a conservation officer, you must have must have been privy to hearing all sorts of tales and, and things of what not to do in the outdoors. Oh, um, yeah, you, and, and I have the utmost respect for conservation officers. Yeah. Um, you know, I can tell you the, the great stories and the ugly stories, you know, um, Mailbox, our mailbox was destroyed or blown up. Mm. Picture windows shot out. Um, I mean, I can, I can tell you the all the good stuff or the bad stuff, if you will. Uh, but there's a lot of good stuff uh, yeah. that comes with that, and in, in learning those sporting ethics, and you know, it all comes down to personal choice. Uh, no, like everything in life. Uh, but yeah, you know, you. Uh, uh, you see, uh, see those things, and 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 you see it through a, a lot of different eyes and a lot of right. different viewpoints. Yeah. Um, so, did your dad did your dad have a favorite bird hunting big game? Like, was there a, was there something that stood out as as his favorite thing to do when he was uh, wasn't, I, uh, being a CEO? Certainly, he liked the grouse woods. You know, he liked the grouse woods because as a, of our connection to Pennsylvania and being there. Yeah. Uh, Southern Ohio. Um, certainly he liked that. Uh, he loved spring turkey hunting. Um, so, you know, as, as turkeys got reintroduced into Ohio, um, mm. he really enjoyed that. Uh, my father was a heck of an angler. 
I always say uh, my father could land a tarpon on a cane pole, and he'd say, you know, if it wasn't for <laughs> old Joe the guide, I, I just got lucky. But, yeah, I'm going to digress a little bit, and we'll get back Go to ahead. RGS and that. But uh, <laughs> The gun club where I grew up and uh, shot at, um, and this is in the days before automatic traps where you actually sat in the little bunker and put clay pigeons yeah. on there. Um, they had this great pond that was full of big bass and bluegills, but you weren't allowed to fish it. It was fishing was off limits. They kept mm-hmm. it for like Boy Scout days or 4-H days or uh, disability children, um, fishing tournaments, inner city kids, things like that. But the general members, you couldn't fish the pond. Yeah. And it backed up to friends of our family's farm. And uh, their daughter, one year, was having, I was 16 at the time because I was driving, but uh, their daughter was having a barn party on a Friday night. And I said, you know, this is going to be kind of cool. Don, son of a game warden. But uh, I am 16 and love to fish. I can, like, go in the back lane to the farm, jump the fence, fish for a little bit, jump the fence, go to the barn party. No one's ever going to know. So that's my plan, you know. It sounds like a killer plan. <laughs> it sounds like a killer plan. And uh, I go and grab my old Fenwick fiberglass rod and, grab my fishing vest, and as I'm walking out, I pass my dad's vest. My dad's got one of those old Betts black and yellow bumblebee poppers on Mm, his vest. And I snag this thing, (laughs) just pluck it right off of his vest. And I go, anyway, and I tie this on, and and the fishing's pretty good. And and there's one point, there's kind of like a little peninsula, a little island that goes out that kind of separates the two. Anyway, so... uh, I'm there, and I'm catching fish, and again, I'm young and not paying attention to knots in my leaders and what size it is, and I've caught a bunch of fish. Anyway, I make this cast, and the popper sets, and it gets still. There's no ripples on the water, and I pop it once, and the fish explodes. I set the hook, and up comes this big, large mouth, and he's shaking his heads, and gills are flapping, and hits the water, and he breaks me off. I lose my dad's popper. (laughs) <laughs> and I go, okay, well, it's time to go to the barn party. So I reel in, jump the fence, go to the barn party. This is Friday night. Get home. Saturday afternoon, my dad comes in and looks at me, and he goes, you know, you really shouldn't be poaching the gun club property. <laughs> I go, what do you mean? He said, you, you really shouldn't be poaching the gun club property. The way I figure you drove in that back lane of the farm because you're going to the barn party and jumped the fence and thought you'd be a fish and no one would say anything to catch you, and then you jumped the fish went to the barn party. And I go, well, Dad, you're not allowed to fish the gun club pond. I don't know what you're talking about. And about this time, Nick, he opens his hand like a softball pitch and throws this black and yellow Betts popper across the room, and I catch it. And he looks at me, and he goes, I guess I didn't tell you that the Boy Scouts were out doing a shooting thing, and they asked me to come out and talk about fly fishing and fly casting and, uh, and uh, talk about conservation. And he said, you know, I grabbed my vest downstairs, and I saw that popper was gone, and I just said, yeah, the kid took it. And he said, so I tie on something else, and I'm sitting there talking, and I make this cast, and I strip the popper, and it sets, and I strip it again, and all of a sudden this fish tight tees off and comes up out of the water and he's got my black and yellow popper in his mouth. Oh my gosh. You can't make that So (laughs) he looks at me and he says, so don't poach the gun club property again. 
<laughs> so I'm sitting there like, you know, I'm just, what are you going to do? Not much to say at that point. There's not much to say. <laughs> and then he kind of smiles at me because he had a really dry sense of humor. Yeah. And uh, he said, and if you're going to keep poaching the gun club property, just tie better knots. That's all he said. <laughs> and I never fished it again. Oh. So uh learned my lesson. That is exactly the kind of story I was wanting to hear from the game warden's son. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I like how he handled that though, you know. Yeah. Not much more that needed to be said and you respected that. Exactly. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh so fast forwarding then well we'll maybe talk about your dogs a little bit later, but I do want to get a, a little bit of an RGS update. What have you been doing this summer? Going to shoots? Michigan's they're, they're, those chapters are pretty good about putting on summer events. I feel like. Well, yeah, we. Uh, it's a very exciting time in in RGS uh, in Michigan now, as well as it is across the country. You know, I before I joined, I worked with the the Grand Rapids Michigan chapter for thirty years as a volunteer, and you know, coming out of COVID, Ben Jones, uh, our CEO president, you know, coined the the phrase conservation isn't canceled and, and, you know, we've come out of, uh, the pandemic. Well, um, we're having growth, uh, in not only staffing as well as membership, but most important habitat dollars. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the state of Michigan, uh, just awarded us with uh, a variety of partners, uh, the U S forest service, Huron Manistee conservation resource Alliance, uh, Youth Works, a hundred and ninety nine nine hundred and eighty thousand dollar grant with matches over two hundred thousand dollars for habitat work in the uh, Huron Manistee area uh, or forest. Which, if you know where Baldwin, Michigan, is, the Pier Marquette River, the project's called the Pier Marquette River mm. Watershed Collaborative. Um, we just got, like I said, over two hundred thousand dollars for habitat work. Um, in that area, we've signed a stewardship agreement with uh, the Federal Forest Service on the Huron Manistee out of the Baldwin Ranger District. Okay. We've signed a stewardship agreement in the Western UP on the Ottawa. We just hired a new forest conservation coordinator, uh, Heather, and I believe it's Smurgy, as uh, the pronunciation of her last name. Heather, if I screwed it up, I apologize. Um, and she's our new forest conservation coordinator for the lower UP okay. uh, in the eastern upper peninsula. Uh, Nick Bougie hired in uh, about six months ago as the en- new engagement coordinator. Uh, so we've got a full staff on the ground in yep. um, working on projects across the state. Um, we had a southern... Woodcock uh, Habitat Grant was given to us last year. Uh, those dollars are being spent in the field as we speak. Uh, things in the Pigeon River country for projects that we had. Uh, so it's a very, very exciting time here in the state uh, with, you know, chapters doing shoots, chapters doing fundraisers, banquets coming up. Um, but really all that effort is, is getting poured back into boots on the ground and conservation delivery um and that's the most exciting thing yeah it's good to hear about the the staffing updates i know we have a couple new folks over here that i've been kind of playing phone tag with a little bit got to get out and connect with them we've got some habitat days scheduled in the near future that i'm hopeful to attend so that's that's good to hear and those stewardship agreements keep popping up all over the place which i might 
butcher that, but it's basically an agreement for Rough Grouse Society to work on national forest and keep dollars on those national forests going back into habitat. Is that a, a fair yeah, assessment yeah, of it, Glenn? Yeah, it's a very fair assessment of it. What it allows us to do is to go in and do a timber cut. We have the stewardship agreement, so we cruise the trees, mark the trees, execute the contract, and then those dollars, instead of if the Forest Service does it, uh, goes into the general fund, has to stay in that ranger district. Mm -hmm. So then, as people know, or maybe they don't know, but uh, we'll explain, the most expensive part of some of these conservation things are what we call non-commercial cuts. Shearing alder, um, doing things that cost money, don't make money. And what's so great about the new RGS model is that it allows us to recycle dollars. We're taking a viable product and putting it onto the market and then using those dollars, recycling them in a sustainable fashion so that we can do have the money, the revenue to do non-commercial work uh, like alders and things like that. So then we can take that money and put it back in to do more conservation work, and the process just goes forward and forward. It's a very innovative plan, um, you know, unlike other conservation plans where you have to raise money and you spend it. This is self-generating, and is the more you do, the more opportunity that you have. And, and John Staggerwalt, uh, the Forest Conservation Director for the, the Upper Great Lakes, has done a great job with this model in Minnesota, in Wisconsin, uh, now coming to Michigan. And um, like I said, I've been working with the organization. You know, I did my first RGS charity auction because I'm an auctioneer as well when I was at the university. So that, I think I did that in 79 or 80. So um, it's an incredibly exciting time. Uh, We've got a great team, great staff. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're just, uh, the, the snowball's just starting to roll down the hill and pick up momentum and getting larger and larger through each day or week. Yeah. Good to hear. Good to hear. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. I know the first time I met you was at... Uh, it was at the uh, AWS event in Michigan. Where was that? Do you remember where that was? It was 2015. It was the the Woodcock Challenge. I, I can't. Uh, remember yeah, where. it uh, it was probably it uh, 2015. I that was that with the International Woodcock Symposium. 
uh, that year, or was that the year before? Um, um, I think we were up in Gaylord that year. So okay, yes, yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Um, yeah. I just am blanking on the location, but I remember you were there just as an exhibitor, mm-hmm. basically, and you had books for sale, and that's where I got my coveted copies of Bear November Days and Come October. <laughs> Two great reads. Yes, yes, yeah. I want to. I want to ask you about those. Uh, I guess we'll just we'll just jump into that right now, whether whether or not we stick with it. But Bear November Days. I need to go back and reread it. It's been a couple years now. That's really like, it's my memory. It's kind of a who's who of grouse writers in that book. Well, yeah. I think if you look at, um, and not to kind of self promote myself, uh, if if you look at uh, boy, a couple of years ago, uh, my pages past article that I write for Upland Almanac magazine, looking at yep. past wing sheen writers, I did a whole piece on that series of anthologies that Country Sport did. Okay. Um, there's Beer November Days, which is the grouse anthology, Come October, which is the woodcock anthology, Call of the Quail, the Quail anthology pheasant tales is the pheasant or pheasant hunting anthology Uh, and then they did a couple dog anthologies uh for the love of the dog and for people that are looking to get started in sporting literature i know from a, a classical literature pieces a lot of people don't like anthologies Myself, I love anthologies. I do too. As a as a little kid, uh, again going back, you know, my favorite book was the the and I still have it, the Treasury of Outdoor Life. It's this big, robust book that had great stories from uh, magazine articles from Outdoor Life in it, and there's everything from african adventures to yukon alaskan adventures to ducks and quail and fishing and the whole nine yards but you know the great thing about anthologies is it allows you to it's like a giant smorgasbord or buffet and it allows you to to taste or delve into one person's writings and then see if you want to follow that person and and read more so again, looking at those country sport pieces, there'll be a Gene Hill piece, a Steve yeah. Smith piece, a Michael McIntosh piece, a Ted Lundgren piece, Brian Belinsky piece. I mentioned Steve Smith. Um, I don't know who I'm. I'm just going off the top of my head. Yeah, I don't have the book in front of me right yeah, now. Yeah, it's a it's a laundry um, list. But yeah, it is kind of the who's who of that um, mid '80s, late '80s, early '90s sporting writers. Um, and the great thing about that is they're all original stories. They had never been reprinted. They weren't reprints. They'd never been published in any other form. Right. They're all original stories. Uh, I did not know. I, I wanted to get a little bit more of the story on Country Sport Press. And I think, I want to say I was, did they do um, Whispering Wings of Autumn? Whispering Wings of Autumn was originally done um by willow creek press okay okay and then i think it was reprinted by wilderness adventures press there is a a wilderness adventures imprint of that book okay well that's a that's a side note then we'll get to that because i've got i've got that book as well and that's a that's a great one and i know i believe it was a recent upland almanac 
issue that you wrote about whispering wings of autumn but as far as country sport press goes i they're no longer around is that correct um or are they they're no longer viable they they've been sold numerous times over the years okay and shooting sportsman magazine owned them at one time and then uh Mm. they were sold uh to uh, someone else i was i i guess i'd never really looked into it but i was i was going to ask you at some point like what would be the bare november days of different bird species and it sounds like they did a quail one and they did a pheasant one yeah they did pheasant tails call to the quail is the is the the quail one woodcock and then for the love of dog is the dog anthology are those uh easy to find or or relatively easy to find they're relatively easy to find okay what would be what's like the most because I know when I bought the Bear November Days in Cumock, I mean they weren't cheap. It was for, it was for charity, but <laughs> is it uh, what was like? What's like the most coveted of of those country sport anthologies? Oh boy, uh, probably probably come October and Bear November Days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those two are, are probably uh, of the anthologies. I think if you look at country sport press as a whole. Uh, probably some of Ted Lundgren's early works um, would be there, either in a trade or a limited edition, and some of Macintosh's works. Um, you know, especially on the limiteds, he had he, Macintosh had what he called uh, caliber copies. So, like uh, on the limited editions of those, like when he talked about um, double rifles, there. 47 would be like the caliber copy for 470 nitro. Mm-hmm. So some of those things are a little obscure and out there little ways. Uh, but you know, you, you got to look at at that time they were publishing Michael's three shooting books, shotgunner's yep. notebook. Um, they did Gene Hill shotgunner's notebook too. Mm-hmm. All right. That's on my, that's on my list to reread perhaps before the season. I am, I am, just before we started recording this morning, I'm about a chapter or two from the end of Macintosh's Shotguns and Shooting Volume 2. Mm-hmm. And I read the first one maybe a year ago, and those are, I mean, they're quickly near the... I've got the third one, too, so I'm going to jump into that. But those are perhaps some of my favorite shotgun shotgun books. Well, you know, you look at it in... Michael was a tremendously talented writer. Yeah. But he was also a Shakespearean scholar. I mean, he taught Shakespearean literature hmm. and had studied that greatly before he got into writing for conservation and writing um, on the shooting side. He was also very knowledgeable in the world of shotguns and double guns and a tremendous shot. Yep. So he's able to take those nuances and blend them together Um you know, it's all the classic sporting writers that are out there are all first and foremost professional writers that then blend their understanding of the outdoors in to make those magical phrases or those magical moments in print. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's why Burton Spiller is the, you know, as he is, or William Harden Foster, or mcintosh or hill or whoever so yeah i and i i mean i hope many of these names are not foreign to listeners but if they are 
I almost I almost envy that because you've got a whole world out there that you can you can go and explore, and that's that's part of why I wanted to bring you on the show today to to drop some names and titles and things that people could check out if they're interested again in this this time of year. One quick thing while we're on that subject, yeah, Michael McIntosh for Wildlife Art News wrote a column where he did biological sketches or profiles of a broad variety of animals, birds, mammals. And it was put into a book called uh, Wild Things. And oh, I have that book. I personally, going out on a limb here. Who's the, who's the author of that book? Do you know? Macintosh. Michael oh. Macintosh. Okay. I got I to gotta check my copy of it because I thought it was John something. I have a. Um, you're I, thinking of Wild Ones. Okay. There we go. Yep. yep. That's John Taylor. Okay. Um, wild Things is this collection of biological sketches. Okay. Uh, that came out of his column in Wildlife Art News. And it's one of his more obscure books, um, but I I personally, because I like natural history books, and, you know, you all know I like shooting books, um, <laughs> but I think it's it's probably his best mm. work in totality from start to finish. Um, so, anyway, is I digress. That, is it all, like, North American animals, or? Oh, no, there's some outside of the North American okay. animals. Interesting. So, I've primarily I've I've leaned into his shotgun writing, which I think is the bulk of it. But I know he did other stuff. Is there a did he ever do like a bird hunting specific book, like more so bird hunting than shotguns? Obviously, they're kind of he melds them very well. But the closest would be the traveling sportsman. Okay. Okay. Um, which had tales of upland bird shooting, uh, driven European bird shooting, and some fly fishing stuff in it. Okay to jot that one down that would be worth checking out okay so one quick little nugget here you mentioned turkey hunting earlier and this is something that as i've got into turkey hunting a little bit more in the last few years i've started to wonder about the sporting literature scene because i've been reading grouse books for a long time primary you know rough grouse hunting that was one of the ways that i could when i was younger before we had access to all sorts of other stuff you know you go get a book or a magazine and and we kind of lived and died by those as you well know what is the turkey hunting literature scene is there is there kind of that romantics oh certainly um and probably the premier expert in the world is jim casada okay uh out of south carolina he knows a heck of a lot more about uh turkey books than i do tom kelly who's a very well uh known author leads the way but yes um there's certainly a its own little niche if you will of turkey hunting books out there yeah. uh, that's not one that i followed throughout my careers as much as i have uh you know game bird and fly fishing yeah um titles gotcha okay so whispering wings of autumn let's talk about that one a little bit because you did you reviewed it and that is uh it's a collaboration between steve smith and gene hill who I learned, I think I learned in that book that those two were, were in my, they were all kind of buddies, I guess. You know, you know more about that than I do, but just a really, really neat compilation. I think they trade off stories. I think it's one Steve and then one Gene Hill through the whole book. And it's really a, just a, a neat mix of stories about, is it primarily Woodcock or is it both Grouse and Woodcock? It's book? both Grouse and Woodcock. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I think Gene Hill and Steve Smith were friends. They wrote together. And that's one of those, I wouldn't call it an anthology as much as it's a, a dual 
authorship. But you get a variety of flavors um, going back and forth um, with that with that wonderful, wonderful little book. Yeah, um, I think it's I think it's Gene Hill that he writes this. It's almost like you don't really know where it's going, but it, it's this fictional tale that he picks up a woodcock on the side of the road and then he starts and he like drives the whole migration with this woodcock oh, yeah. on the dashboard. <laughs> Yeah, the the birds on the dashboard. Yeah, um, and he, he writes the he writes his letter home uh, to his wife. Yes, uh, describing how he went out to get a gallon of milk, and uh, this bird hopped up on his <laughs> on there, and um, they're in Louisiana, and um, he was sure that the they'll start home in a few weeks. Um, <laughs> is you know that's it's, it's quintessential creativeness uh, yes. that you find in Gene Hill's writing. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And that you've got to be, you've got to be pretty well steeped and immersed in it to to write something like that. And that's it's very apparent when you read through that. Have you ever read a book called Timberdoodle Tales by Tom Waters? Uh, yeah, out of Minnesota, certainly yeah. have. Yeah. Do you know anything about him or the book or anything come to mind? Um, I believe Tom worked for the Minnesota DNR. Okay, I think that's um, right. Yeah. It was originally privately published, and then I believe they did the reprint was done. Uh, by Safari Press out of California. Okay. Um, but it's a, a wonderful little book um, regarding Woodcock in Minnesota. Yeah, it's kind of a pet favorite of mine. There's a, a local guy, well, in Minnesota. He's a big sporting library. And I would, when I was working for the Rough Grouse Society, I'd do banquets over there. Ted Lundgren was part of that chapter. So I got to meet, I got to meet him, who obviously we, we lost him in the last year. But I got to meet him and some of those other guys, and one of them would always have he would have books for sale, and I bought this little Woodcock book library from him, and that included Timberdoodle Tales. And so I've, you know, over the years made my way through these books, and that one I don't know if it's because it's Minnesota or it's it's a great book, but it just I just love the stories in that, and they're just they're very unique. It's there's there's a good bit of grouse in it too, but it's not one that you would you would hear about. You know, it's not a huge name. And it's just a, it's a great book. I usually reread it once every couple of years, at least. Well, there's a lot of books like that are, are out there. Yeah. Um, and again, when you stumble across them, it makes it enjoyable. But again, when you, what I said earlier about blending, blending experiences and writings together, I think uh, the author did that very well there. You have to have enough experience yep. to know what you should write about and what you shouldn't write about. And I'm not a, much of a writer. I mean, I, I struggle um, with that. But you really have to know what you're writing about and then be able to put it. Because there's only so many ways that you can say the dog went on point. Right. Okay? Yeah. You know, he was rigid as a cemetery marker or, you know, whatever. And there's only so many ways to describe a flush. But what you find is the stories within the stories, the dialogue, um, the character development. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of John Tainter Foote. He wrote a book called Jing uh, that was done by Derrydale Press. It's a great dog story. And it's the dialogue, and it's great. Ray Holland's books um, also fit into those categories. Uh, those are from the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s. But, you know, being able to blend those two together 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, Timberdoodle's Tales is one of those titles where you see the, the quality of writing, but you also see the experience that's overlaid in how he describes the event, right, wrong, or indifferent. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and I, and I think, the you know, the more experience you gain personally, that's where, you know, you go back and you reread a book and things resonate with you differently. It's, yeah, it's how how the experience blends with with the quality of writing and I think most people are you never quite know how a book is going to strike you but when it does it's it's impactful well and I think the the thing that you see is that as one gets more experience or ages or as he or her develop in re- by rereading things you'll you'll get a whole you may get a whole nother level yes uh, you know a whole nother level of flavor and unami whatever you want to say with the book the second time around it's like the short and happy life of francis mccomber the classic hemingway short story i probably first read in probably high school before high school uh certainly before time at the university and you know it was a safari you know the first time i read it being young and naive you know it was a safari tale of a hunting accident and then uh, later in life after relationships and loves lost or whatever you want to say heartbreak you see it a different way and then you know after being married to my lovely wife for 30 years you can see it in a third fashion hopefully my wife doesn't shoot me Uh, (laughs) but uh, neither here nor there but it, the story is the same, but your perspective, I guess, is is changing. Yeah, um, is, is what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, that's one of the you know there's there's so many books that it's a it's a never ending problem. There's always another new fascinating book to read, but then there's something to reread, and I guess you've just got to be okay with both of them. And we can't read them all, can we? We sh- but we sure sure as heck can try. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed we can. Okay, so this is this is a burning question for me, and similar to what I asked you about turkey hunting, and I'm, and hopefully maybe there's something here, but sharp tails, there doesn't seem to be, or at least I just haven't come across it. There doesn't seem to be nearly the uh, romance as the ruffed grouse and and the you know the volume of literature and but. What am I missing? Is there are there books out there? Is there a bare November days of sharp tail grouse hunting? What what else? What is there? No, um, there's not really a lot of literary books no. that's out there. There there's scientific studies, of course. One Andy yeah. Amon did on uh, sharp tails mm. in Michigan years ago. That was a DNR publication. Really, just like uh, a yeah. woodcock book. There's a there's a book called oh shoot, it's a Wisconsin based book. Uh, drawing a blank here, Nick. This is embarrassing. Oh, that's um, <laughs> your, your but, but recollection is spruce, dang good. Spruce grouse and sharp tails a little bit. Really? But, yeah. Um, something yellow. I gotta jot that down. Anyway, but he, here's the here's the thing that and McGuane has written some essays about hunting out there for sharp tails and hunts. Yeah. Um, Harrison did some things. Ben Williams has done some things, but yep. combined into that. But here's what it goes back to, at least in my mind. It's about romance and dreams. 
Why do people? Why are there so many volumes written by, on Atlantic salmon fishing or trout fishing that are lyrical versus largemouth or catfish or bluegills or crappies? Mm. It's because early on in the genre of sporting literature, if you want to call it a genre, I believe it is, and one that should be studied, is that people with time and opportunity, wealth, went fly fishing. They were also schooled, and they wrote about it. And the good ones rose to the top. The same thing with grouse and woodcock hunting, starting back with Edmund Davis's woodcock shooting book. Versus, you know, it's one thing to, to... to write romantically regarding the, you know, and I'm just going to throw out a bunch of words here, uh, <laughs> the autumn breeze yes, <laughs> um, and the fading sunset on golden October, golden, <laughs> you know, leaves or amber colored forest floor, whatever you want to say. Okay. It's much harder to talk about or write romantically about slogging through a cattail marsh for pheasants in a pair of farm boots, and <laughs> car hearts. Uh, and I'm not trying to be discourage right. anyone. Uh, but that's where it comes in. And, you know, nothing's been done. Um, you know, Worth Masterson did some chucker stuff uh, out west. But as a, a full anthology going back to, uh, there's really not a, a lot out there. Yeah. I think that probably is the story that I would have come up with. I th- you were what you were kind of getting at too was, you know, in order for all of this literature to exist on rough grouse, you had a lot of people in the East and the Northeast that were, again, they had their basic needs met so they could go to school and they could do these other things. Whereas out West, that was probably not the case. You know, you, they had a People living out there had a lot of other priorities than than hunting sharptails and writing, you know, books about them. And even Ben Williams in his books, he talks about when he moved out there and wanted to hunt birds. He he's like he was like one of very few people that was even hunting birds out there. So there there just isn't the history of pursuing them in the way that we do now, as there was like in New England, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just really interesting. What about Charlie Waterman? Was he a was he a Western? Writer, I've never read his books, but I've heard them highly recommended often. Oh, Charlie, uh, yeah, Charlie Waterman lived in Livingston, okay, part of the year, and in Florida, part of the year, and uh, did write uh, about western wing shooting as well as shooting quail, teal, doves in Florida. He kind of spent the the summer months in September and the winter months in Florida. Yeah, he was an early writer in Grays. Um, okay, so. Yeah, I'm going to have to, while I edit this, I'm going to have to go out and make sure I buy any of the books that we talk about here, Glenn, before I publish this. <laughs> there's one writer, one grouse writer that I feel like, I mean, there's more than one, but one that seems to have evaded me only because I just haven't gone out and bought a copy of one of his books and read it. But Tap Tapley, I believe. What do you know about him? Um, well, I wouldn't say Tap Tapley was much more known for his, you know, sporting notes and okay. things. Um, now, he hunted with Burton Spiller, okay. and Spiller refers to Tapley a fair amount. And then Bill Tapley, uh, his son, who did some sporting writing as well as uh, murder mysteries based in the Northeast, oh, okay. um, 
wrote a little book uh, about hunting with his, you know, the sportsman's father's uh, shoes, about hunting and fishing with him and, and all of those people, but uh, along the way. Frank Wilmer, of course, wrote his grouse book and his woodcock yes. book. Yep. So I just picked up a cop. What's his grouse book called? Uh, the Rough Grouse. The Rough, yeah. I bought that around Christmas, and it's it's in my stack of books to read. I have his complete guide to woodcock shooting. I think mm-hmm. I read that one. Um, he wrote he wrote a handful. That's a he, reprint and renamed. The original book was called Timberdoodle. Okay, all right. So the rough grouse and then Timberdoodle. Okay, yeah. And I I know that one of the reasons I went out and picked up that book because I was really interested. I didn't know this. I don't think reading the Woodcock book, but he somewhat famously hunted grouse without a dog and was kind of not into the whole idea of hunting them with dogs. Yeah, he was a little contrarian, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a good word uh, for someone from the Northeast. <laughs> Yeah. All right. What's I got a I got a couple things here, and we're, we're going to kind of we're working towards towards a conclusion. New books, anything new coming out? I heard you mention on the podcast with Reed Mike Gaddis. He's been recommended to me a number of times. I don't have any of his books, but he's a he's still writing books, right? Yeah, uh, he's still writing books. I mean, Jenny Willow and Zip Zap are two of his. Um, he did a little right. private release. Um, couple years ago but he's still writing uh he writes for sporting classics magazine okay um still doing some things uh there was a book called grouse points that was done by a gentleman here in michigan named uh, tom or ken mcintyre excuse me correct yep i did interview him i read that one that's a a interesting it's a nice little read uh the cool thing about that is all the artwork his wife's a very talented needlepoint person so the artwork is theirs of her, not only original design by hand, but instead of thinking of a, a flat piece of art that's you know painted in oils or acrylics or watercolor, she does it with thread and yarn, which I found uh, incredibly, incredibly interesting. When I realized so, I was looking at a needlepoint, like my mind was blown because oh, I was yeah. totally looking at it as a painting, and then. Eventually, you pick up that it's that it's needlepoint. It's like wow. Yeah. So uh, that's one that's out there. Yep. Off the top of my head, nothing really. Uh, that's just all one related. There's some pieces out there that you know cross pollinate with other sports or other natural history. Yeah. Yeah. I did pick up a copy of based on you mentioned it with Reed. Tattered Autumn Sky by Tom Davis, who's mm-hmm. one of one of definitely one of my one of my favorite magazine article writers that I've been reading. I I didn't know he wrote that book until you mentioned it, but eager to read that one. I mean, the nice thing is you really you really can go out and find copies of most of these books pretty easily. Oh yeah, I mean, go to the internet or yep. you know however you want to source things, but uh, you know they certainly are out there uh, and available, and you know. Part of it is is that, you know, it's the quest. Going to used bookstores, which I don't do much anymore, or, you know, looking at collections since RGS has taken the bulk of my time. But, you know, part of it is is finding, you know, trying to build that collection and, and finding those pieces to pieces of the puzzle to fill in. So 
do you still have a uh, do you have a shop storefront? I, I'm I thought you did at one point. We did at one time. Okay. Um, we still have some books and doing some stuff online. Uh, my wife's running that. Okay. But uh, I'm full time with RGS, and yeah. uh, you know we're not doing shows anymore like we used to. And mm. uh, I don't want to say we're winding it down, but uh, uh, I'm not active in that as much. Got it. But if anybody, if we put a bug in anybody's ear about a certain title, they could they could get in touch with you. Yeah, they can get in, they get in touch with me. Probably the best way um, for RGS conservation related questions is Glenn D at roughgrousesociety.org on the conservation side. Uh, if you had any book questions, you can reach me my personal email, glennrblackwood at gmail.com. Glenn with one N, G L E N R Blackwood at gmail okay. um, would be the, the way to get to me or through the RGS website, roughgrousesociety.org. Okay. Do you have a do you have a website at all for the for your bookstore or books or no anything? I do not okay gotcha all right what's the last book you you put down do you recall the last book I finished yeah is a wonderful book called the eloquence of sardines huh by Bill Franco he's a French gentleman R or F R A N C O I S it's it's just a wonderful natural history look. And a variety of fish species. Um, this gentleman's a physicist. He studies how fish sound sounds move underwater, but it looks at a, a whole variety of tropical fish, ocean fish. Majority of them is are saltwater-based fish. But yeah, the eloquence of sardines is, I mean, has nothing to do with bird shooting at all. <laughs> but uh, a tremendously interesting and enjoyable read. So that's the last one that I finished up. Got it. All right. Okay. So bird season approaching. If you were gonna, if you were gonna pick up a a bird shooting book, what what might that be? A title or two that come to mind to get you amped up for the season? Um, my gosh. Uh, depends on where you're hunting, what you're doing. Yeah. If you're looking at a a modern writer, I like. Making Game by Guy de Lauvin. Mm. Um, I also like his quail book, A Handful of Feathers. I like his western book, A Fragrance of Grass. I like his writings a lot, especially... Who's the guy that wrote Meditations on Hunting? Is that That's Ortega, the Spanish yeah, philosopher. Jose Ortega, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that would be one. I think if you're in the grouse realm, either... New England grouse hunting or uh, Spiller's grouse feathers, more grouse feathers. If you're a big woodcock aficionado, The Fall of Woodcock by Tom Hugler is a tremendous read. If you like pheasants and you haven't read Pheasants of the Mind by Datus Proper, mm. uh, that's the most lyrical, spectacular pheasant hunting book ever done. Pheasants of the Mind. Pheasants of the Mind. All right. Yeah. I see. I got to go get all these now before I publish this. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> so uh, I'm just one guy, though. Yeah. Those those would be ones that you know jump up out of there. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you kind of by species, so I'm glad you went there. What about quail? We mentioned the the country sport press quail anthology. Yeah. I'm really curious about that. Valdine's A Handful of Feathers is a tremendous quail book. Yep. Um, it's very very lyrical. And then you. 
you briefly touched on chucker earlier are there is there a, a chucker book that comes to mind well no there's just you know essays that are out there but nothing okay. start to finish yeah. on on those gotcha all right glenn well we could we could go on but we will why don't we save it for another season past another year of experience and another year of perspective gained and we'll touch on some of these titles again in the future uh, look forward to it. Everybody have a safe and blessed bird season. And as you are out there traipsing away, uh, please think about uh, the conservation efforts that are going on. And, you know, if you're grouse and woodcock uh, inclined, please uh, join or support the Rough Grouse uh, and, or American Woodcock Societies or any of the other uh, strong conservation aspects are out there. Uh, because uh, without our volunteerism and conservation dollars at work, we're going to be lacking as we go forward. Indeed. Not to leave on a somber note, but... Oh, roughgrousesociety.org, uh, absolutely. Last year, 2021, was the 60th anniversary, correct? Correct. Yeah, 60 years. And and still going. And still going strong. Stronger than <laughs> ever. <laughs> that's good, that's good. Now, I, I, I forgot to ask you this earlier. This will be our... We'll end on this, but... Being that you are out and about talking to many a Michigan bird hunter, what are you hearing? What's the optimism or anecdotal reports at this point? Well, certainly, like everything else, until you're in the woods full time and yep. you're not going to go. Uh, there seemed to be a fair amount of drumming this year yep. um, throughout the state, um, both the, the northern lower and into the UP. I would say what has me most excited is versus the past two years is that by and large we had very, very good weather during nesting or brooding season. Yep. I think, uh, you know, you can talk about a lot of things, and I'm not a biologist, but when you have birds on the nest and you get another two foot of snow and then it ices over and it sticks on the ground for a week, ten days. Not good. Um, in you know late april early may that doesn't bode well so this year we've had we've had a good brood nesting season i think we've had just enough moisture that we're, we're going to have grasshoppers yeah um we're going to have insects for them to to bud nest on uh or eat on and grow yeah so i think uh by and large should be pretty strong um or i'm being uh, optimistic that it yeah. should be pretty strong. I'm always yeah. that way. Yeah, but, you know, I on the too. the Woodcock side of the coin, we've got a little local county park, maybe ten minutes from our house. That there's always a bird or two in there singing in the spring. And you know, this year we had six or seven. Now, is that because it was colder temperatures up north and they just stopped here? Right. Population increase. I, I don't know, but you know, hope springs eternal when uh, there were that many birds uh, there singing this on the evenings this uh, this spring. Yep, small sample size anecdotal reports, but hey, it's we we cling to those this time of year, and I'm I'm right there with you. It does feel like there were a lot of check boxes in the pro column. I think weather wise and condition wise this year over here has it been drier over there now? Because I feel like we've had quite a bit of rain in a, in a good way. But I I was talking to a uh, actually a customer of ours at Upland Gun Company the other day in Michigan, and he said it's been fairly dry of late. I, I think it's it depends on where. Sure. Uh, you locate in the state. Um, it's been fairly dry around here, but we had a big storm come through over the weekend and 
yeah. you got over two inches of rain in a in a short period of time, which isn't great. You know, I just always want those, you know, steady rains that start at ten o'clock and end right. by five thirty in the morning. Yeah. Um, you know, rains all nice, nice and steady. But there have been some passes of weather that have gone uh, south of us, and a few that have gone north. Um, yeah. But I think uh, overall we're in pretty good shape. Good deal. Glenn, well, I want to thank you for taking some time to chat with me and the listeners of the Birdshot Podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for what you do for the Ruffed Grouse Society. Keep up the great work, and thanks for dropping some knowledge with us on sporting literature. Not a problem. Thank you. All right, Glenn. You have a great day. Take care. Bye. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.